very juicy slogan is saying, you can't correct a market failure with a market-based policy. That sounds great to say, it sounds really smart. If your theory of change is that you need to dramatically restructure uh, how power works in this country globally in order to solve large issues like climate change, there may be some truth to that. But in order to do so, we have to get a lot more uncomfortable. You're listening to Cooler Earth, a podcast of climate exchange. Your weekly dive into energy transitions, sustainability, environmental politics, and all things climate change. Each week, we feature special guests and in-depth discussions with your hosts, Maria Virginia Olano and Amanda Griffiths. We've been seeing a lot of carbon pricing in the news lately. There was the most recent IPCC report on what will happen with 1.5 degrees Celsius of global temperature rise. There was the Nobel Prize being awarded to economist William Nordhaus. All of these things have really raised it in public perception. So William Nordhaus is an economist that has been working most of his career on carbon pricing schemes and their role in reducing greenhouse gases that have led to climate change. And the IPCC report was really what put a limelight in carbon pricing mechanisms because historically the IPCC scientists had stayed clear from policy recommendations. They always just gave the science, here's what's going to happen, here's what's not. What changed in the tone of this latest report that was released in October was the the way that they actually set out policy recommendations, one of which was carbon pricing. They do outline the fact that carbon pricing by itself is not going to solve climate change or avoid the worst consequences. But without a carbon price, it is very unlikely that we're going to be able to keep to 1.5 degrees of warming. And to preface that, it's important to recognize that we're already living with at least one degree Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels, which means we're already two-thirds of the way to what we have deemed as the threshold up to which we can go before global system collapse, basically. <laughs> when we say global system collapse, what what are we talking about? We are talking about a tipping point where there will be dramatic feedback loops that worsen the effects of climate change. Coming from an ecology background, there are really delicate balances between our earth systems and what's happening on land and in the ocean and what's happening in the atmosphere. And it's a very delicate balance. So what we're looking at is these feedback loops of once we start getting on this trajectory of changes across the globe, those are just going to reinforce more changes and it's almost a snowball effect. And at this point, unfortunately, we're already looking at just lessening the worst consequences. There is no longer kind of mitigating all consequences of climate change. So this latest report looked at the effects that the biosphere would have on 1.5 degrees of warming versus 2 degrees of warming. And let's preface by, if we don't change anything at all, we're heading to a 3 to 4 degrees Celsius of warming, which is a scenario that is even more catastrophic. So basically, in the conclusion of the scientific recommendations say that global net carbon emissions need to fall by 45% from 2010 levels by 2030 and reach net zero around 2050 in order to keep warming around 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's a very drastic and dramatic reduction 
of carbon dioxide emissions, which means transforming the ways in which we live and our economies work today. So this is all to say that this was a really big report yeah. and really scary outcomes. And the fact that now it feels like we've hit this fever pitch where we're now putting policy advice into IPCC reports. So what is this policy advice? What is carbon pricing? And that's what we're going to look at today. And the interesting part is that we already have carbon pricing mechanisms around the world today. And there are 53 initiatives that have been implemented or scheduled for implementation worldwide. And together, these initiatives will cover about 20% of emissions once China's system takes place in 2020. When China's system does begin in 2020, a fifth of global annual emissions will be covered by carbon pricing. Programs. And that's not to say that a fifth of emissions are going to be eliminated or reduced. It just means that they're going to be covered under a carbon pricing system that is hopefully designed to reduce those emissions. Exactly. And so I think carbon pricing and these market-based mechanisms for reducing emissions are a bit difficult to understand. Right. They're not necessarily intuitive for those in, not in the economic field. So today we're covering the basics, what exactly happens with these systems, what are differences between a carbon fee or a cap-and-trade system, what that means for emission reductions, what are their policy implications, where do we go from here on the road to catastrophe. So we're here with Jonah Carmen Faber. He works with our research team and has just finished a very long research project on cap-and-trade systems in North America. And we wanted to talk to him about what exactly cap and trade is, how it works, how it should be improved, and the impact that it has on climate change mitigation. So let's get right into it. Jonah, for people that don't really have context or background, can you very simply explain what is a cap and trade system? Okay, let's, before I answer that question, I'm going to go, I'm going to clear something up right away, because this is confusing even within this own building. We have three terms we're going to define right now. First one is carbon pricing. Carbon pricing is any system or program that puts a price on emitting carbon. It's an umbrella term. Umbrella term. Big picture. Under that, there's two main ways you can price carbon. There's a cap and trade system, and there's a direct carbon fee system. Okay, so there's the carbon pricing as the umbrella term, but there's these two different kinds of approaches. The cap and trade approach doesn't prescribe the price. What they do is instead they designate permits to allow you to emit carbon if you're a big industrial facility. And they allow a certain amount of permits to circulate in a given year. You have to buy your permits on an open auction market. It's basically the most free market attempt approach that there is because when you buy those permits, the price is set by the market supply and demand stuff. So with the system, there is a finite cap on the amount of emissions and then those allowances make up that cap and that's why it's a free market because people People are then buying those allowances, but it's there's no set price on them, just a set cap on the overall emissions, which dictates how many allowances there are. That's right. And the reason, the strength of that program is that you can control essentially the emissions on a yearly basis. If you want the emissions in 10 years from now to be 30% lower, you set the cap at this year at whatever emissions are now decreasing gradually until you hit 30% less in 10 years. And basically, whatever price is necessary to spur those reductions is going to reflect in the auction. 
what happens if you run out of allowances? You mean if they're all purchased? Mm-hmm. Well, that's well. For one, that's a good thing. You actually want all your allowances to be purchased, especially if you're in government, because you're trying to raise revenue for mm-hmm. green infrastructure programs. But there's a bunch of flexibility mechanisms, and we're not—we don't have to get into them. But basically, imagine that you have this. There's this vehicle that's driving towards your emissions goal, and it's more—it's more complicated than that. There's buttons you can turn, knobs. There's a nitro that you can engage. Uh, there's a throttle and all that stuff. There's all these controls that we have that are kind of economically wonky that we can use to to protect people who buy them, to protect consumers, to raise or lower the allowance price however we see fit, to accelerate or slow down our emissions reductions. All those tools are there. So, But it's still a free market? It's still a free market. Well, that's, you know, call it what you want. Uh, it's definitely more free market than the other type. Which and is, what is that? That's direct carbon fees, mm-hmm. and that's what climate exchange usually works on. Mm-hmm. We don't say one is necessarily superior than the other. It's how they're designed. But a direct carbon fee system says we're not going to set uh, a certain amount of permits every year. We're just going to say how many, how much a given permit costs, and you can buy as many as you want in a given year. Now, there doesn't actually necessarily have to be permits bought, but you report your emissions. These are big emitters. They report their emissions, and then for every metric ton of carbon dioxide they emit, they got to pay 10 bucks, 20 bucks, what have you. The strength of that is it's predictable prices. So if you're a big company, you want to make long-term investment decisions to reduce your emissions, you can plan that out. You have certainty there. But you don't have a guarantee of what the end product of your emissions is going to be. That's less guaranteed. So it seems to me, though, that in a, under a cap-and-trade system, for, if the goal is to reduce emissions, that would be or should be the preferred means of achieving that because a government or a, le- a jurisdiction can actually cap and decide how much carbon can be emitted into the atmosphere. We know, however, that that's not necessarily true. Can you talk a little bit about why it doesn't work as well in reality than in theory? Sure. And I will say that, yeah, there are a bunch of people in California, in the Reggie region, in Quebec. uh, These are regions that have cap and trade programs uh, that support the idea, um, but are critical of how they're uh, enacted in practice. And that's absolutely correct. These programs are, let's go back to this throttles and buttons and knobs analogy, they can be manipulated to also weaken the program. And often what is politically feasible is not compatible with what emissions reduction goals actually are. Mm -hmm. So instead of enacting a program that's honest and saying, this isn't quite what we want uh, in terms of our emissions goals, but it's what we can do. Uh, Instead, they pass programs that seem like they're fairly effective and they're covering our bases when in fact they don't quite get there. So Maria, do you remember that time that we (laughs) drove in a Tesla? 
It was amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of those things where we've heard how amazing Teslas are, but you never really understand it fully until you are in it and like actually riding it's, inside. Yeah, it's like you're driving in a spaceship. Literally. <laughs> like these really crystal clear screens and you just touch them and decide what you want to listen to and then you look up and there's no ceiling. Everything <laughs> is so sleek. On that note, we are actually in the middle of our biggest fundraiser yet. And we're giving away three brand new Teslas. Right, we decide for our third annual raffle, three Teslas is very fitting. True. And the winner gets their choice of a Model X, a Model S, or a Model 3 performance for first place. But second and third place also get a car. Just pretty sweet. So where do we find out more about a raffle or purchase a ticket again? Yeah, so if you want to support us on our mission, visit carbonraffle.org where you can get your tickets. So can we take a step back and look at what cap and trade systems exist in North America? Where are they existing and what are the acronyms for them? Sure. In the United States, there are actually two cap and trade programs and there is zero direct carbon fee programs. There is one direct carbon fee program in Canada, in British Columbia, and that's because if you talk to someone there, they might trust the government using their money a little more wisely than here in the U.S. It's a different culture, so that, that explains that a little bit. But those are for the reasons I described before. The two cap-and-trade programs that do exist here are the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative on the East Coast, currently 9, 10 states, about to be 12, and California and Quebec have formed a joint cap-and-trade system called the Western Climate Initiative. Both of those have existed for about 5-10 years. The Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative started in 2008. Western Climate Initiative started around 2012-2013. Okay, so it's Reggie and WCI. Yes, and I want to make one very important distinction in that the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative only covers the electricity sector. Mm-hmm. And that's a fraction of emissions in the region. Uh, so when politicians or activists or anyone says that we have a cap-and-trade program here, say we do, but it's on a very small part of emissions and it needs to expand. That's a big message of the study. Do we have numbers on, you say it's the electric sector covers a fraction of the emissions here. Do we know what percentage that is? It depends on the state because some states like Vermont and New Hampshire have essentially zero emissions in the electricity sector and pay no mm-hmm, pay right. no uh, allowances. But places like Maryland mm-hmm. still have coal plants, uh, and those are a big chunk of the regional greenhouse gas initiative's emissions. When we see these trading systems happening in larger regions, like the Reggie region, is there fear because the electric sectors look so different between those states? How does that impact the allowances and permits? Are some states, I guess they're low-hanging fruit that some states are able to basically take more of those emission reductions than, than other states? So that's, that's a fear that some people have, but I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit and say that, first of all, the fact that we have a cap-and-trade program on a large number of states, relatively large number of states together coordinated, is rather exemplary, Mm -hmm. and it's extremely difficult to pull off. It was a multi-year, collaborative, open process that is really something that we should be learning about Mm -hmm. and replicating uh, for our work in other states. 
Now, that being said, the linking part of actually implementing it between states is one, not as difficult as you would think, and two, not as impactful as you would think. Each of these states has their own cap that they set. Now, when the point of linking their caps is that increases the market liquidity, again, back to these knobs and levers thing, that allows them to have a more stable market. But in terms of the impact on their individual states, that's fairly isolated. And so let me get one thing straight. The goal of these programs is ultimately to reduce greenhouse gases, correct? Yes, but if we're going to speak candidly, the real goal of these programs as they're currently designed is to raise revenue. And that's true in California and Quebec as well. If you look at California, it's a little more obvious because they have an entire suite of reduction policies that do a lot of the legwork for reducing their emissions. And there's a small gap between their goal and what those other policies achieve, and they, they, they claim that that gap is what cap-and-trade has to do. Okay. And how, what is that revenue being used for? That revenue is being used for a lot of things, and it really depends on the state, it depends on the system. In the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, each state has their own choice of how to use the revenue that they raise. Allowances under their cap go to them, no matter who buys them. And because the allowance price is so low, we haven't even talked about that yet, but it's very low, it's very cheap in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. So there's not a lot of impact on consumers, so they feel safe just using that for energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy, all investment side stuff. In California, the price is much higher, between three and five times higher. And going to the study that you did, one of the research points that was highlighted was with WCI in California and Quebec linking that because Quebec's energy sector is, they have hydro, I mean, they're very low carbon already, there wasn't as much low-hanging fruit as in California to reduce emissions, so you saw more of the benefits of emission reductions in California, although both generated revenue from the system. So is that getting back to really what these are being useful for at this point? Right. And it also goes back to the linking point is that it, it achieves less than you'd think sometimes. And in the case of Quebec, their interest in linking was simply, one, to increase their market liquidity. As we said before, they're a small province in terms of their emissions, so they need a higher or a larger pool in order to have a stable price. Mm -hmm. So that was their interest with joining California. However, the way that supply and demand curves work, if you have a fairly large entity or sector in one of the jurisdictions under a cap-and-trade system that can reduce their emissions very cheaply, then they will do so, and that will reduce the, the price of allowances drastically. And that's happened in California. They've reduced their imported coal power contracts. They've switched from natural gas to increased solar, and they've had a fluctuation in hydropower. All this stuff was very easy to do and drove the allowance price down. In Quebec, they don't have any sector that can abate their greenhouse gases for that cheap. So all the reductions are happening in California, and Quebec has to wait for the price to go back up for them to get the emissions reductions they want. So in terms of your research, what is the main takeaway in terms of what should be done to improve upon these programs to make them actually achieve greenhouse gas reductions? 
It doesn't matter whether you choose carbon fees or cap and trade. It's how they're designed. It's how they're implemented in practice. Right. And having a cap and trade program is not enough. So we make some technical suggestions and some fairly simple ones. The main one is that the Reggie region needs to expand their cap and trade or apply some carbon pricing mechanism to their transportation sector and their heating fuels. And then can we take it a little more on a macro scale and the theory behind putting a price on carbon emissions as a mechanism to reduce greenhouse gases that are detrimental to the to the climate. So in theory, the idea is you make more expensive the things that you don't want to have. And this has happened with other forms of pollution and other forms of even health consequences, right? You price things you don't want to encourage people to be buying or using. What is the divide within even the enviro community about how to go about even thinking about these kind of capitalist ideals to put a price on carbon emissions versus a more command control that would say, actually, from the government down, you're only allowed to emit this much? That's an excellent question. I want to say to that, it's a very juicy slogan is saying you can't correct a market failure with a market-based policy. That sounds great to say. It sounds really smart. And there is some truth to that in terms of if your theory of change is that you need to dramatically restructure uh, how power works in this country or globally in order to solve large issues like climate change, there may be some truth to that. But in order to do so, we have to get a lot more uncomfortable. Not just uncomfortable politically and uncomfortable in terms of our daily lives, but uncomfortable in terms of what we're willing to do as policies. Carbon pricing can be a good start and can very dramatically complement those policies in a few ways. One, by changing the price of goods to include their externalities, we're having a much more honest conversation about what we're doing to each other across the globe and what we're doing to the environment. Second of all, we're raising money. That money can be used any which way you want. If you want that money to go towards community solar or projects that transfer the ownership of energy to the people, you can do that. Carbon pricing can help you do that. And not only will it help you do that by funding those projects, but it will also decrease the revenue of fossil fuel industry over time. So when we talk about market mechanisms detracting from or complementing more, more drastic social theory of change, those two goals can be united. But, and to just kind of play the opposite for a second, wouldn't it be true that people that believe that the system is inherently flawed and the system under which we have lived right now have actually been responsible for leaving us to a place where we are now with so much carbon in the atmosphere that our systems are about to collapse... Wouldn't they say, well, how can we trust that kind of system to actually invest the revenue in a just way that moves us towards the place where we need to be in the future, which is a 100% renewable energy future? So this is where you have to pay careful attention to how they're designed, because there are plenty of systems worldwide where it's a fairly centralized decision-making process of how mm -hmm. funds are used. We've designed bills that actually be task forces that rebate aggressively to low and moderate income that very deliberately give a voice to these people that we're trying to transfer not just 
wealth to, but also power and ownership mm-hmm. of their own energy. So this is where I would say people have to pay close attention and also get involved in the carbon pricing process. If there's a divide in the EJ community, by, by EJ I mean environmental justice, and the carbon pricing coalition are not unified, then we can be missing out on some of those, those goals. If those two groups can unify in designing carbon pricing policy, then we can design not just the revenue be used a certain way, but higher than that, design a decision-making process that promises longevity in terms of fulfilling the goals of a more drastic uh, social change theory. Last season we talked, or we had an episode that focused on energy democracy and the concept that it's great to move towards renewables and that is something that we definitely want to achieve and it's great for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but those changes have to be made in a way that doesn't just transfer current power dynamics and structures over to the next energy system. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like carbon pricing... Is, is another way to make sure that we disrupt current power dynamics and move to a more just future. I think that's right. And again, I'll, I'll circle back to saying that it really matters how it's designed. When we get to the very detailed level and we say, what does this specific jurisdiction need in order to transfer ownership of power to the people? It, it differs from place to place. The details are going to differ, and that's why we need that community-level involvement in the design process. However, what's more important is that across the board is that legislators, carbon pricing coalitions, EJ communities, all are involved in the process. Carbon pricing, even from the perspective of climate exchange, is not going to be the only thing that we do. So when we talk about carbon pricing, we're not expecting this to be a silver, silver bullet, and it certainly will not, on its own, drastically reshape the social fabric of society. However, it can complement that. And again, back to the main point, it's not about how these programs are conceptualized in terms of theory, it's how they're designed in practice and how they're implemented, how they're collaborated on, and that's how you synthesize with with larger goals. Jonathan, thank you so much for speaking to us today and agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I did have to chug a good amount of coffee in order to get myself woken up for this podcast. These are heavy topics, but it's, it's my job to talk about them, so I always love to do so. So thank you for having me. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform and follow us on Instagram at Cooler Earth. Stay tuned for next week's episode, and thanks for listening. Stay cool.